Thank you, guys, ladies. All right, if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and these guys will be glad to give you one. You take your Bible and turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Is anything exciting going on? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to wake you up. Any of you baseball fans? Any of you fans of God's team, the St. Louis Cardinals? I know I am. Well, it's, a, it's a thrill when, you see, when it's your team, but that, uh, that game six, whether you, I don't care whether you were even like baseball, that's just an incredible event. So it's interesting how uh, I'm one. I didn't ever give up on them. Like, <laughs> my wife is laughing because I wouldn't even watch it. I'd leave the room and she'd think, come back, he did it again. I said, I can't take it. It's driving me crazy. As you know, we were joking about it last week, or talking about it last week. In game three, Albert Pujols hit three home runs in one game. Only happened two other times in baseball history. Reggie Jackson did it in 77. I remember watching that game. At that point in time, I was a Yankees fan, and I got saved. <laughs> Just shortly thereafter, actually, I went to the company I was working for had an office in St. Louis, and they took us to a game. Ozzie Smith and I was converted right there at the moment. Hallelujah, I was saved right there. They were playing the Montreal Expos, who were awful, no longer in Montreal as a result. But anyway, Pujols did that. It is an incredible feat. In 1926, there was a little 11-year-old boy named Johnny Sylvester. Anybody know who he is? If you're a baseball historian, you might know who Johnny Sylvester is. If not, you will in a moment because you will know the story. In 1926, Johnny Sylvester, 11-year-old boy, was kicked in the head by a horse. And they thought he was going to die. And he said, I have one wish before I die. I sure would like Babe Ruth to hit me a home run in the World Series. Now, Babe Ruth was not known for his moral lifestyle, if you know anything about the man. But a, a telegram, the Cardinals were playing the Yankees in the World Series in 1926, and they were in St. Louis. And so a telegram was sent from New York to St. Louis and said, well, Johnny Sylvester would love for Babe Ruth to hit him a home run in the game. So several of the Cardinals and the, and the Yankees signed baseballs and sent them back to Johnny Sylvester. And Babe signed one and said, I'll hit your home run Wednesday night. They hit three of them. So the following spring training, this would have been like October of 1926, the following spring training in 1927, Johnny Sylvester's uncle goes up to Babe Ruth and is just profusely thanking him and saying, boy, really appreciate what you did for little Johnny and, and uh, hitting that home run for him. And Babe Ruth, being polite, which was not normally his uh, forte, said, well, who, you know, how is little Johnny doing? And his uncle said, oh, he's doing fine. He recovered. He's doing great. And so the uncle walks away. Babe Ruth turns to all the reporters there covering spring training and says, who the blank is Johnny Sylvester? Now, here's my point. We're going to look at a psalm today called the crown of all psalms. And the message of this psalm is God never forgets you. He does not forget you. And Babe Ruth did a Cool thing for little Johnny Sylvester. You think Johnny Sylvester ever forgot it? No. Babe Ruth forgot the moment he did it. But God wants you to know. He wants you to know. If there's nobody else in the universe, he thought about you before he ever spoke anything into existence. You were on his mind. That's how special you are. Look at the series. We're wrapping up this series today. If you'll notice on your handout, it says, when you feel worthless. And I think sometimes in the lives of many of us, Maybe not you, but maybe somebody you love dearly, somebody you've known. You get to a point, you're saying, you know, I'm just, 
I'm a nobody. I'm not worth anything. I don't even know why I'm here. I'm just taking up air. I'm taking up space. I'm a burden on my family or there's no, you know, my parents don't love me. I don't have anything to live for. I don't even know why God made me in the first place. I don't even know if there is a God. The Lord wants you to know, Psalm 145, the Lord is near to all who call upon him in truth. That's what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. What we're going to do today is look at this incredible psalm that answers a, a, a myriad of questions. But a couple of them are, who am I? Who am I? And why am I really here? You may not know all the answers to why, why you are here, but God wants you to know who you are. You are incredibly important to him, special to him, even if you're not a Christian. Even if you haven't come to the point in your life where you've said yes to Jesus Christ, you've repented and you said, Lord, I accept you as my Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins and taking my punishment. I want to be a follower of yours. Even if you've said no to Jesus Christ, you're still special to God. You know why? Because you're a human being. He made you. He created you in His image. You are the epitome of everything He made. You're the only thing He created in His image. You're the only thing with an intellect. You're the only thing with the capacity to know God intimately to be a child of his. And even if you said, no, I don't want the family relationship. I don't want to be your child. God wants you to know, I love you anyway. I still sent my son to die for you. I still extend to you an opportunity to spend eternity in a place called paradise. You're that special. You're that unique. I was reading this week about this giant computer that they're building. I don't know if they finished it yet or not, but this computer will fill a room the size of a hockey rink. It will consume as much power as a small town, and, and its goal is to compute a quadrillion calculations a second. Not only can I not read that very well, I can't even comprehend what that is. A quadrillion calculations a second. That's roughly a billion times faster than whatever computer you use now, whether it's a laptop or your handheld device, whatever it might be. This thing, as big as it is, as powerful as it is, that's roughly a billion times faster than the computer you have. A quadrillion calculations a second. Now, trying to comprehend that, let me give you a little encouragement. The brain that you have, that God gave you, is ten times faster than this computer. It can calculate ten quadrillion things a second. That's how unique you are how special you are. John was sharing with us earlier in this Facebook world that we live in and the Twitter world that we live in. I haven't quite arrived to Twittering yet other than in just in my conversation. But sometimes we lose an understanding of the value of looking somebody in the eye and saying to them how special you are to me, but especially to God. As Christians, the one thing we can look anybody in the eye, whether it's somebody that hates the thought of God or somebody who has loved Jesus been saved for a long time, and is struggling with their worth. You can look them in the eye and say, God loves you and has something very special for you. may not have found out what it is yet, but it does exist. That's how special you are. So when you feel worthless, God's got a message to you. You matter. You're infinitely important to him. As you look at this psalm, and we're not going to have time to completely break it down, but as you read it, read it and you study it, there's two great things that it answers beyond what we've just talked about. It answers the question what evolutionists say, where did you really come from? And the, the intricate design of who we are, evolution cannot answer. God says, let me answer it for you. I put it, I put it there. The DNA that is you existed from the moment you were conceived. So 
You're also talking about when you deal with abortion. Those who say, I'm a Christian and I can believe in abortion when you can't believe the Bible and you can't believe what God has said and believe in abortion. Because God says you're a human being from the moment you're conceived. And this psalm screams that. That's how special you are. That's how special a child in the womb is. God knew you before you were ever in that womb. That's what this psalm talks about. So when you get to Psalm 139, what you're seeing is David's contemplation. We looked at David's sin and we dealt with that last week, how his repentance. When you read Psalm 139, what you're looking at here is David's contemplation of God's nature being used on his behalf. God's omniscience, that he knows everything. God's omnipotence, that he's all powerful and he uses that power on my behalf. God's omnipresence, that there's not a place in the universe that I can even comprehend that I might go to. God's not already there ahead of me. And that yet all of those attributes, God funnels on my behalf because I matter that much to him. So let's begin to walk through this psalm, Psalm 139, thinking about, I really want you to be honest in your heart. Do you ever contemplate how special you are to God? And if you ever find yourself in a place where you're saying, you know, I'm just not of any worth to anybody. I was joking the other day with Mary and, and I was talking to another guy. Actually, we were joking about who we are and being married for a long time and our life insurance. And both of us said, you know, we're worth more dead than alive to our wives. And I think sometimes people really feel that way. I know when my poor mom, she died in December of 1999. We joke, we have a plant out here in the lobby that uh, fortunately Martha Horn is around to keep it alive because I would kill it. And I got that plant that, that we call it Mama because I got that plant at my mom's funeral in December. It's the only plant that I've ever touched that did not die. We got it in December of 1999, and my poor mom was mentally ill for years and years. And she just and, and I can still remember visiting her and seeing her. And, my, and even as growing up, my dad was mentally abusive to my mother. And I, and I can remember just conversation after conversation with my mom where she would just say, "You know, Randy, there's no reason for me to be here. I'm worthless." Nobody loves me but you. She knew I was her favorite by far. But she made me feel that way. And I could look her in the eye and say, Mom, you may think nobody else loves you, but Jesus does. Jesus does. And I don't care who you are, please understand that. Jesus loves you. All right, let's look at Psalm 139, starting in verse 1. God's knowledge of you. God's knowledge of you. Look at, first, first of all, the first four verses, this intimate knowledge of you. Psalm 139, verse 1, God's intimate knowledge of you. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word on my tongue, but behold, oh, Lord, you know it all together. This intimate knowledge of you. You have searched me, verse 1. The verb in Hebrew means dig, to dig. God has dug. There's not a thing in, in the being that is you that God hasn't dug out. He knows every little detail. You have therefore, because you've dug me, you know me. But I want you to really notice verse 2. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. There's a picture here. Really, I want to make sure you get you know, my sitting down, my rising up. There's a parallel here in Hebrew. What you're seeing is my active life and my passive life. Look at the rest of verse 2. You understand my thought afar off. Here's the picture I want you to see about God's intimate knowledge of you. Whether it's your active life, what you're up and doing, or your passive life when you're sitting around, and every thought that you have, conscious or even subconscious, God knows it. He knew it before it ever happened. He knows you. And you know what? You know what's so exciting about that? He loves you anyway. 
He loves you anyway. He's intimately acquainted with everything that is Randy Lockley, and he still lets me get up every day and serve him. He loves me, and he, he's intimately acquainted with me. This is so important as a principle, and I want to I make, make sure you get it before we move on. Because so many times as Christians and so many times in the church, we think about sin. If I say sin, what's the first thing you think of? My wife. No, that's not right. When I say sin, what's the first thing you think of? Don't, I want you, by the way, don't articulate one of your own personal sins. I'll do that for you. I just want you to, when I say sin, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Somebody say, what? Anybody else? Anybody else? So many times in the church, we think sin, we, we start thinking heinous things or even active things, things that we do that are wrong. I really want you to understand this. There are two types of rebellion in a person's life. There's active rebellion and there's passive rebellion. Passive, if you, if you just kind of exist and walk around through life and you're a decent human being, but you have no interest in God and serving Him at all, you're just as guilty. You understand that? That's passive rebellion. You may be, a, you may be on the front line of atheism. You may be one of these knuckleheads in the media or some, one of these Hollywood elites who just mock God, actively re, in rebellion against God. Or you may, you may be a criminal, actively in rebellion against society and God. But all of us are born sinners. We saw that last week in Psalm 51. And you could be a passively rebellious person. That's kind of the way I was growing up. My brother was very much an active, in active rebellion. He was, as a matter of fact, there's an article today in the sports section. If you remember, if you grew up in Memphis, you may remember a guy named Johnny Newman. Johnny Newman and my brother graduated from high school together. with the best basketball player I've ever personally been around. We used to play pickup games together. An incredible talent. He and my brother spent a lot of time together. But my brother was very much actively rebellion in the drug culture in the late 60s in the city of Memphis. Uh, he was involved in, in some crime things. And, and when I came along, my dad looked at me and said, don't even think about it. I was never allowed to drive because of what my brother did. I was never allowed to go anywhere. With, my dad wouldn't let me uh, use a car. He wouldn't take me anywhere because of what my brother had done. So I was pretty much on my own, and then God brought Mary into my life, and fortunately her parents had a car. So... That's all the reason we're together today. Is I had, and I had a really nice, never mind, we won't get into that, take too long. So, my brother was very much actively rebellious. For me, the worst thing I ever did, I'm confessing my sins, the worst thing I, all I ever wanted to do was play basketball and be cool. I wasn't very good at the ladder, so I loved to play basketball, and that's all I, we had a, we lived, the church was behind the parking lot. I, my dad never cared, he didn't care when I came home, he didn't care what I did, as long as I didn't call him from jail, like my brother had. He said, don't call. If you're in jail, don't call. I ain't got any more money. So he said, you want to go to college? You're on your own. There's nothing. So all I did was play basketball all the time. That's all I ever wanted to do. I used to break into Kingsbury High School, me and some other guys. We didn't break any windows. I was skinny. I weighed about 120 pounds. I know you find it hard to believe. I weighed about 120 pounds so I could fit through the door. When the chain, when they had them chained, we'd pull the doors apart. I would slip in. We didn't turn any lights on. So they had one light on, like one, kind of like one of these, and you could see one end of the court. We'd go in there and play basketball. We, I was so nice when we left. I'd clean up. We never did any damage. We just wanted to play basketball. That was kind of the worst thing I ever did. I wasn't actively rebellious against God. I went to church every Sunday. I did exactly what my mama told me to do, and it bothered me if I told the lies. I was, but I was passively rebellious. I wasn't interested in doing exactly what God wanted me to do. All I wanted to do was play basketball. And be cool. Did God know about me? Yeah, I was just as big a sinner as my brother, just in a different way. We're all born sinners, and God knows us. Whether you're actively rebellious or you're passively rebellious, it's only in your thought life. 
He knows. Look at verse 3. You comprehend my path, my line down. You are acquainted with all my ways. There's not a habit you have. There's not a haunt you go to. There's not a thing that you do that he is not intimately acquainted with, including websites you visit. One of the things that's really a serious problem in the church in the United States is pornography in the church. Because mentally what it does, to us, particularly men, we had an article this week about the brain of men and what pornography does to it. Because you become, it becomes an absolute, it's incredible, so hard to get rid of it, that, that, that thought life. That's why the Bible says make sure every thought you have you bring under the authority of the Holy Spirit. Every place you go mentally, God knows about it. He intimately is acquainted. Now that could, you could pause at this point and say, uh-oh, right? But look at the next point, verse 4. There's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Every word you utter, he knows about it. Look at verse 5. You've hedged me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful, wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Not only is God intimately acquainted with you and knows you that well, this intimate knowledge is incredible, incredible. Because here's the point God wants you to take away. Look at Romans 11.33. Say on your outline. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, exclamation point. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Look at verse 5 again. You've hedged me behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. This knowledge is too wonderful for me. Please, un please get this picture. The word hedged. When I was growing up, we had hedges in our yard. A lot of the yards in our little subdivision. I'm wondering if they called them subdivision, but the little place I lived in in East Memphis, a lot of people, instead of putting fences up, would put hedges up. And the idea there, the word hedged is, is that God limits you. This is in a very positive way. Again, how much about me does God know? How much about you does he know? Every little detail, every thought, every place you go, everything you do. And God says, I want you to know, and David's contemplating this incredible knowledge that God has about him, but as his child, that God has hedged him. God gives you freedom, but he puts limits because he loves you. He's going to take care of you. He's not going to force you to love him and worship him, but he's still there for you. It's kind of like being a parent. The point comes in raising your, rearing your children, you reach a point, you got to kind of let them go, don't you? But you want to keep certain hedges out there so they don't kill themselves in the process. God, in these first six verses of Psalm 139, without getting into great detail, uses eight different Hebrew words. Eight different Hebrew words God uses in these six verses to say to David and to say to you, I know you. And each of those eight different Hebrew words gives you a different aspect of that knowledge. That's why he says in verse 6, I'm blown away. That's the Hebrew Randy translation. I'm blown away at this type of knowledge that God is that acquainted with me, and yet he loves me anyway. It just blows me away. So what you see in verses 1 through 6 is how much about you God knows. Then in verses 7 through 12, God wants you to know, not only do I know this much about you, I know you, I'm also going to go with you. I know you, and I'm going to go with you. Starting in verse 7, you see, you begin to see God's power for you. Verse 7, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Here's the idea, God's presence. He's everywhere. He's using Hebrew hyperbole here to say in verse 7, I can't hide from you. God won't let you hide. No matter what your guilt is, he wants you to know, let's deal with it. I'm here. Yes, I know you. You're not going to hide it from me, and you're not going to run from me. No matter where you go, I'm still there. I am omnipresent.
present. I used to tell that when I was working with teenagers all the time, one of the things I would say to them is, understand this. You don't, you say you're a Christian, hope you are. You're not hiding from God. Wherever you go, whatever you do, if you're born again, and even if you're not, He's there with you. So if you're in the backseat of a car, guess what? He's there with you. If you're in your parents' home, they're not there, guess what? He's there with you. You're not going to hide from him. You're not going to run from him, whether you're a teenager or you're a 57-year-old man. You're not hiding from him. So embrace him. Embrace the knowledge. Let him use it on your behalf. Look at verse 8. If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. The idea is, the hyperbole that's being used here, heaven or hell. That's it. When you pass away, there's no two, there's no other option. You're either going to one or the other, right? What he's saying here is, my destiny, God is in your hands. I'm either going to heaven or I'm going to hell based on what God has done, what Jesus Christ did. Now, I can choose to ignore it and not respond to it. But God's, my very destiny is in the hands of this God that knows me that well. He says, I want you to understand, I'm there for you. You may think you're worthless, but I love you. Even your your eternal destiny is in my hands. He turned to me. I love verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, again, using this hyperbole, the uttermost parts of the sea, the very depths of the ocean, which we can't even get to and survive. But he was saying, if I could, if I could go to the very bottom of the ocean, you're already there hanging out. But I love the idea of wings in the morning. You know, basically what he's saying there, if I could travel like the speed of light, if I had that capacity, a lot of young people, my son's age and, and, uh, are, are really into uh, superheroes. And, you know, I mean, you could tell, it, moves, it seems like every month there's a new movie coming out, whether it's The Green Lantern or, or all these things. Even the kids that I knew about, Thor, my, my brother thought Thor was just the end all. It's the coolest thing. For me, it was Captain America. Now they got a Captain America movie. I loved Captain America. I don't know why I just thought the suit was cool. We've always been fascinated. I'd like, ooh, I'd like to be able to fly. He's saying, even if I could travel like the speed of light, even if I could go to the very bottom of the ocean, imagine when this was written, the mindset, how little they knew at the time. And even what we know now, what an incredible thought that is. Even if I could do that, God, you're already there. You're already there. The very seas that I'm thinking about going to the bottom of, you spoke into existence. If you read the Genesis account of creation, the Bible says he made the stars also. That's all it says. He made the stars also. We, we, we're just blown away by one star called the sun. God made them all by saying he made the stars also. And he knows every one of them. Maybe you're not an idiot like me, but when I was a kid, I used to lay in my front yard. I loved to do it. Just lay in the front yard at night and count stars. And I didn't even drink. My dad did it, but he did it because he was drunk. I didn't even drink. I just thought it was so cool to lay there and, and contemplate the cosmos. God says, there's not a star up there that I don't know. And yet, hey, Randy, you're more important to me than anything. My son became one of you. He didn't become a star. He became a human being. He didn't become a gorilla. He became a human being. You're made in my image and nothing else is. That's how special you are. You understand why the gospel is so real, so important? Because what we share is the intimacy of who God is. Then you see his protection, verse 10. Even there, no matter where I go, depths of the ocean, if I can fly like a, the, the speed of light, I can go wherever I go, you're there, God. Even there, your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall, be, shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. 
The darkness and the light are both alike to you. His protection. There's so much there. Let me just say this one thing. Even darkness is subject to God. Do you know why? John 1 says he lights every man coming into the world. He is the light of the world. It's not an accident Jesus chose that metaphor to describe himself. I am the light. I'm claustrophobic. Have you ever, and, I, and we spent the night one time in a cave, and when they turned out the lights, you could not see your hand here. You ever contemplate pitch darkness? There's a reason God uses that metaphor, that even the dark is subject to him. You don't have to be afraid of anything. Notice the way he puts it. Even dark and light are the same to you. You know, Revelation tells us when we get to heaven in the eternal state when we're all there, in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven, when we're all there worshiping, that the, it's, the Bible says there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no stars, there's no artificial light, that heaven and eternity, where we will be with Jesus forever, is illuminated by his presence. He is the light of the world. So whatever darkness I might be afraid of, literal darkness, mental darkness, I think again about my mom and people I've known that have been mentally ill, that darkness Maybe it's an emotional darkness of abuse. Whatever it might be, God wants you to understand that's nothing to me. I am the light. I am the light. That's why what thing people used to say years ago when someone got saved, they saw the light, meaning they got it. They got it. God wants you to know how special you are. Not just you. Every person you know, born again or not, God wants them to know I'm the light. I'm the light. I'll take you out of your darkness and I'll set you free. And you'll never have to be afraid again. I'll protect you. And if that's not enough, finally, you see God's purpose for you. Look at verse 13. And this is where if you've never, and you've probably read this a million times, especially dealing with abortion. If you've never meditated on this passage of Scripture, you need to. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. Verse 13, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. God's purpose for you. He made you. You are His creation. He designed you exactly like He wanted you to be. I used to struggle with this because I was, I've got a huge nose, if you haven't noticed. I used to struggle with that, but now I realize God gave me that nose because He likes big noses, apparently. But He gave a little nose to somebody else, so I don't understand. All I know is He wanted me to have this nose. You know what? That's cool. Because He didn't make mistakes. I was reading an old African-American preacher was preaching on this passage. I was reading his sermon this week, and the title of the sermon was God Don't Make No Junk. I love that. God don't make no junk. He's my dad, and he doesn't make any junk. So if he wants me this way, it's the way I need to be. He gave me the sense of humor I have, so that's who I am. I need to be who I am. So do you. Sin aside, you need to be who you are. Use your personality for, for, on behalf of the kingdom. If you don't have talent like me, you don't have talent. What you have is your good looks and personality. You use them. That's all you got. So you use it. God created you. But I want you to notice a couple of words. Verse 13, the word covered. I know your Bible might say something different, but it says you covered me in my mother's womb. It's a great picture in Hebrew. It means knit. It means knit. That's what the Hebrew word means. In the womb, before you ever existed, God knit you and made you exactly like he wanted you to be. Part of one of the reasons we, we discovered this now, we really understand this now, is because of the incredible uh, technology we have now with ultrasound. And I don't, I don't remember which of our first of our children, I guess our first child, we didn't have ultrasound. Is that right, Mary? You're, we're so old. I mean, I'm so old. I shouldn't have said that. 
But with our second child and our third child, you know, you could go and you could see, you could see the heartbeat and you could see the child in the womb and, and our, um, I don't remember if it was Andy or, or Beth. I think it was Andy. Though I remember we had one of the ultrasounds and you could see him doing something in, when Mary was carrying him in the womb. To this day, he's 25 years old. When he's, when he's contemplating, he still does this. Same thing. He was pulling on that ear in the womb. It's still what he does now when he's tired. And uh, Beth used to twi uh, twist her hair. She has a daughter that does the exact same thing. You don't think God knew he knew that? He knit them in the womb exactly like he wanted them to be, and he knew it before he ever spoke the universe into existence. And we think that fetus is not important. God loves you. God loves you. Inward parts, verse 13, in Hebrew means your kidneys. Your kidneys. You don't think God knew what he was doing? You know how important your kidneys are to you? God says, your kidneys. I knew them. If you've ever read or studied, and in, in, uh, that's why evolution doesn't even make any sense when it comes to intelligent design, to think something as sophisticated as a human body just kind of happened by accident, take any part of it. I was reading an article this week about a guy who was a nuclear physicist. If you are a nuclear physicist, what does that mean? You're probably a pretty smart cat. It ain't like going to get a business degree like I got. You got a nuclear physics degree, you probably got some smarts. And he said he began to contemplate nature. And he began to contemplate, he was not a Christian, and he began to contemplate the human body. And he discovered how they fit harmoniously and almost perfectly together. And he said the more he explored it, the more he realized that what the Bible said was true. And it drove him to searching that out. And he went to a Bible study and he got saved. Because his brain led him to think, this, is, this could not be an accident. It just doesn't make sense. Logically, intelligently, it doesn't make sense. I read about another guy who was involved, he was an atheist, he was involved in Alger Hiss, if you remember that story about the communism and spy plot, and he was one of Alger Hiss' informants, and the guy got saved. You know what saved him? He was holding his little two-year-old daughter, and he, you know, if you have a small child, you know how much you love them. He was just sitting there holding his little two-year-old daughter, and he was contemplating her ear, her ear, and it made him realize how sophisticated the human body was, just the ear, and it led him to search, and he got saved. That's how special you are. God knows your kidneys. Your frame, verse 15, the word frame means your bones and your muscles. And in the idea of the lowest parts is the womb. Verse 14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works that my soul knows right well. And in the idea in verse 15 of skillfully wrought is the idea of embroidering something. And I've never embroidered anything, but I've seen things that are embroidered. God says, you're unique. And I embroidered you, knit you, and then embroidered you just with what I want you to have. Your lungs, for example, need your heart. And your liver needs this. You need your liver. Your liver needs this. Your stomach needs these organs. God put them all together skillfully, technically, especially. And then he added a little embroidery that what makes you, you. Can't be explained any other way. And in verse 16, God's plan for you. You saw, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Please don't miss that. The idea of substance here means embryo. Your substance, even being unformed, the literal there means rolled up, almost exactly what we would see in an ultrasound. God, by the way, told us this in Psalms a long time before they ever discovered it. God said, before you were ever that little rolled up thing in the womb, I had all your days planned out. You ever think about that? God's told the prophet Jeremiah, quote, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I sanctified you, that means set apart. I ordained you, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb. That's how special you were. In verse 17, his thoughts. 
How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. It's like having a dream, and then when I wake up, God's still there. I want you to notice the last thing. We're not going to go all through all the verses, but the prayer that he prays, he says, slay the wicked, O God. I love this because it's real. Here's what he says. He's been contemplating God and incredible, how good God has been to him. And then he thinks about people that, that hate God, and he gives us his human response, and his human response is, kill them, God! Kill them! But then he begins to continue, as he continues to contemplate and pray, he says, but Lord, search me. Lead me. How did the psalm begin? Look back at verse 1. How did it begin? You have what? Searched me. And it ends with, keep on searching me. See? Great picture. Keep on searching me. Why? Because I want to be exactly what you want me to be, God. I don't want to have a bad attitude about killing people. I'm wrong about that. Search me. Lead me. I want to be what you want me to be. I hope you're encouraged when you read Psalm 139. You should be. That you're special. Just like you are, God's there. and He, wants, he has a great plan for you. He has thoughts for you. He loves you. I've shared this story before, but it's been a number of years, so I want to share it again because I, it really illustrates this so well. There was a little girl, a girl named Mary Bird. It's a true story. She was born with a cleft palate. If you've ever seen a child born with a cleft palate, you know how tough that is. The twisted lip and the crooked teeth. It's a tough way to be a, a kid. And she would go to school, and of course, what are kids going to do? They're going to make fun of her, pick on her. And she said, every time somebody would ask me about what happened to your lip, I would say I fell and cut it on a piece of glass. She said, I'd rather think I had an accident than I was born deformed. But she said, something happened to me in the second grade that changed my life. They had a teacher named Mrs. Leonard. And Mrs. Leonard, Mrs. Leonard would do a thing called the whisper test. If some teacher, if you've ever done this, and used to do it when I was a kid, and the whisper test was to check your hearing, the teacher would have you go stand at the door, cover one ear, and she would whisper something like, the sky is blue. And if you, you were to whisper back or uh, tell her back what she whispered, or you had my shoes something, and then you would, would tell it. So if you could hear, you would say it back. So Mary Bird goes and stands at the door, and she's expecting to hear the sky is blue, you have nice shoes. And she said, Mrs. Leonard said seven words that changed my life. She said, I wish you were my little girl. God wants you to know. He's so, he loves you so much. And if you're not saved, he's saying to you, I wish you were my little boy. I wish you were my little girl. And if you are born again, he's saying, you are my little boy. You are my little girl. And I love you just like you. You're not worthy. You're special. I've got a plan for you. Now come listen to me. Let me tell you my plan. And let's go do it. You're special. Bow your heads, please. Well, we do thank you for a God that's real, that you are real. It's not a game, not our religion. We get to intimately know the God who spoke the universe into existence. You love us. you got a special plan for us individually and corporately. So, Lord, I pray corporately we would get in on that plan but I also pray individually. If there's one person seated in this room today that's never given their heart to Jesus, they would understand God is whispering to them right now, I wish you were mine. Jesus died for you. Just say, Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. Please come into my life and save me. I want to be what you want me to be. I want to get in on that plan. And Lord, for the Christians that are here, if they're feeling worthless, they're feeling they don't have a special place, remind them, not just Psalm 139, but throughout the Bible, that you say to them, you're special. You're not worthless. You're mine. I pray we would be encouraged as we read that song. And Lord, today as we close out, as we sing, as we pray, we would thank you for who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.